This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megu. I also host my own podcasts, Independent Thought and Freedom, and also a story club, Global Politics and Global Cultures. Today, my guest is the Right Honorable Sir Vincent Cable, former leader of the Liberal Democrats in the United Kingdom and former Secretary of State for Business, Innovation, and skills in the coalition government. He's a distinguished economist, former academic, and author of several books, most recently, China Engage, Avoid the New Cold War, published by Bit-Sized Books this year, 2020, out now in paperback and on Kindle. Welcome, Sir Vincent. Thank you, Kirk. All right. Uh, It's a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, but for our audience that may not know much about uh, your background, could you please let them know a, a little bit about yourself and particularly in relation to the subject of your current book? Well, I, I got interested in the, the problems around China and how we deal with it. In, in the five years that I was in the coalition cabinet, um, I was extensively involved in building up our trade and investment relationships. Um, met some of the key figures in the current regime, like Wang Kishang, who is arguably the deputy to President Xi, uh, and was incredibly impressed by China, I have to say. Uh, I mean, there are some ugly features, but very impressed by that. Uh, but my interest goes back before that, um, before I became an MP. Um, I mean, I was an MP for 20 years, but before I became an MP, I was the chief economist at Shell. And one of my jobs was doing uh, some of the evaluation work, the scenario planning around massive shell investments in China, um, which took place in Guangdong, uh, and have proved to be very successful. So I have a bit of a history, and I've, I've been there now several times. If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, at Shell, what years, um, what years was that? Well, I was there roughly between 1989 and 97, uh, but I was chief economist in the last um, last period. Oh, wow. So you were there during Tiananmen Square and whatnot, or in the aftermath? Uh, I was certainly in um, Shell af- just after Tiananmen Square. Um, but actually, okay. that, that particular episode uh, featured in my recent writing, because I've been... Uh, writing a book which appears next February on some of the great political figures of the last couple of centuries who influenced the way we do economic policy. And I looked in particular at Deng Xiaoping, who was actually one of the, some ways, one of the heroes of the last century because of the impact he made on uh, lifting living standards in China. But of course, he was in charge when Tiananmen Square took place. But you know, certainly when I was at Shell in, in the in the interesting era when you know the old Soviet Union was crashing, um, I went to Moscow in the the middle of this uh, period of instability and did some planning there on how oil companies should deal with the new Russia, uh, and it was an exciting time. You know, looking at the you know the old world was sort of cracking up and the old Cold War was disappearing. Uh, we're now looking at a new one. Because there's a big difference mm-hmm. that the old Cold War was with the Soviet Union, which was militarily powerful, 
but economically very badly run and it was a very backward looking. They couldn't adapt to new technology. It was a very closed society, whereas China is quite different. It's a highly successful capitalist country. Uh, people travel at the moment, certainly freely in and out. Um, they look for knowledge. There are vast numbers of students um, studying overseas, including quite a lot at the London School of Economics, where I'm currently doing quite a bit of work. Um, so, you know, China is a very different proposition from the um, the old Cold War. And, but nonetheless, we are drifting into uh, a new Cold War situation, which is what prompted me to write the book. And I, I thought it was going to be heavily influenced by who won the American election. I mean, you're following this as much as I am. Um, and I thought it would be timely to bring out a book just before that happened. Right, right. And, you know, that that's a, a, a very interesting experience you have, uh, you know, around 1989, 1990, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Tiananmen Square. And, I mean, you being uh, personally, you know, in Moscow at the time uh, with Shell and then also in China, um, you know, as someone on the ground, uh, did you, you know, what, what did you observe that, um, you know, the, that, that we analyze, you know, intellectually, but you would have, you know, maybe, uh, seen and, and felt on the ground that, that would, you know, give us some more depth and insight into those, uh, more intellectual observations. Well, I don't want to claim too much. I didn't spend too much time on the ground, but I certainly visited those countries at an interesting juncture in their history. Of course, the Soviet Union was was tending towards chaos. It was very difficult to find out who was making decisions. Um, there were a lot of oligarchs stealing vast amounts of money, uh, which have ultimately become the some of the richest people in the world. Um, China is a very different story. Of course, even... Uh, you know, when I went there, it was booming already. Um, the Deng had been in power for over a decade. Um, major reforms had been enacted, living standard was rising rapidly. Um, the, the debate at the time was between people who saw the Chinese dragon continuing to rise and expand and those who somehow thought it would fall off the rails, either because of political instability or because there was some inherent weakness in the economic model. Well, they had the political instability, which led to Tiananmen Square, and then we had the crackdown and the Communist Party remaining very firmly in power. But the economy has boomed and boomed and boomed. Um, and in recent years, of course, they have had their problems after the great um, boom in investment in the beginning of the last decade after the financial crisis, they racked up an enormous amount of internal debt, you know, very dodgy financial transactions um, designed to support the, you know, big expansion of property and infrastructure. But they've managed it. And you haven't seen in China the kind of collapse that occurred in um, Western systems or in Japan. And they've, they've, carefully um, manage their state enterprises, their banks, they're now much more stable and they're very safety conscious, which is why only yesterday you saw that uh, Ant um, uh, equity listing pulled in Hong Kong. They're very safety first and they've avoided the kind of financial instability that every, everybody predicted would overcome them. Right. Now, the title of your book, uh, China Engage, Avoid the New Cold War, it, it's, you, you are definitely clearly inserting yourself into a debate, an, an ongoing debate. Um, who would you say are the main people uh, you are arguing against or the, the main forces uh, on the other side of the debate? Well, there is a whole new generation of cold warriors. Now, some of them are the old cold warriors um, dressed up in the new guise who are looking for an adversary uh, who are ideologically opposed to China. They take the Communist Party label seriously, though China isn't really a communist country in any way, meaningful way. And then there are the, the sort of new generation of people who are extremely alarmed that China is overtaking the United States. It's arguably now got a bigger economy, certainly in purchasing power terms. 
Uh, its technology sophistication is growing. They're probably ahead of the United States in 5G, not yet in artificial intelligence. And they have a weakness in terms of advanced semiconductors. But nonetheless, they're catching up rapidly. And they're alarmed of, of China effectively overtaking the United States and becoming the new superpower. And in addition to that, there are people on what you might loosely call the liberal left who uh, dislike, you know, for, for good reason, um, many of the things that happen in China, the reports that have come out about the Uyghurs in northwest China and the persecution of them, a mixture of religion and uh, culture and what worries the Chinese have about secession, but that's seen as a human rights issue. So you have people on the, the what you might call the right who see China as an economic threat and ultimately a military threat, and people on the left who um, are appalled by their approach to human rights and their disregard for the kind of values that a lot of liberal people hold dear. So this constitutes the basis of the new Cold War alliance. And I think what could happen uh, is that you, you're going to get a ganging up of countries uh, against the Chinese. You see a bit of this already, though, because Trump is a unilateralist. It, it isn't a very coherent alliance. But the United States, some European countries, including Britain, India, which has its own separate uh, quarrel with the Chinese over border issues. Uh, Vietnam, another communist country, but very um, antipathetic to China, fought a war with them uh, within living memory. Um, and, you know, Taiwan, which feels under threat, um, Japan and Korea to a lesser extent. And th there is this possibility of a kind of NATO. Uh, directed at China rather than Russia. Um, and that's the kind of outline that I see taking place. Right. The the quad, in a, in some sense, uh, might be some beginnings of, of that, would you say? Yes. Well, the, the, the basis of, um, you know, the pooling of um, anti-Chinese activity has taken place primarily through the Five Eyes Group, which is the United States, um, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, I think Canada may be a member, but I'm not sure. Um, and we saw the, the impact of this in the controversies around Huawei, which is the, the Chinese uh, telecommunications company. Uh, I happened to deal with Huawei when I was a member of the government. I was closely involved in negotiating with them over a five-year period. And they were doing some fairly intimate work uh, with British intelligence um, operations, GCHQ. But we had them repeatedly checked out, and they seemed a perfectly bona fide company, and they never engaged in any nefarious activities that we could detect. Uh, and that's why I think the decision of the British government to effectively throw them out entirely rather than have a more cautious compromise approach, uh, allowing them into the peripheries of the telecommunications, telecommunications network, was, it was a bad move. Uh, and um, you see similar things now beginning to happen. Australia is quite hawkish on Huawei, uh, and Australia has got involved in a, in a dispute with China. Um, notably over its demand for a retrospective investigation onto who and how the COVID um, epidemic was started. Well, let's talk a bit more about that then. Um, how, how do you see this uh, COVID um, pandemic and the lockdowns and the crisis um, that has followed, how, how do you see that impacting this whole uh, drive toward Cold War or toward engagement? Well, it's had a massive impact, I think, on public opinion. Um, five years ago, uh, in most Western countries, I think most countries internationally, China was thought of pretty favorably. Um, within the last year, disapproval of China has gone up to about 90% of the public, in, in certainly in the, the European countries where public opinion has been polled. And a lot of this has to do, I think, with COVID. Um, but there are two elements to the story. 
Uh, the first was that the Chinese authorities were slow to make publicly available knowledge of the pandemic. And this had got something to do with the way that the Communist Party administers China, suppresses information, people afraid to go to a higher authority for risk that they will be criticized or worse. But once they had acknowledged that they had a problem, they dealt with it with extraordinary efficiency, quite ruthless, but highly efficient. And within the last few months, we've had mass gatherings in China with no recurrence of the infection. Uh, the Chinese economy, uniquely amongst major countries, uh, is now economically re recovering strongly. And they've demonstrated both the, the strengths and the weaknesses of their model that, that you know, because of the one-party system, it does tend to breed um, sycophancy and secrecy. But equally, when they set their minds to a major task, uh, they do it and in a very effective way. Um, and moreover, they, they have a very highly successful economy, which is now strongly recovering and is outpacing uh, most of their potential competitors in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere. Yes, yes, that's it's very interesting, and and um, and the the way you you um, outline the new Cold War alliance um, ideologically, as opposed to the, the the international alliance of countries, you know, the liberal left, uh, let's say. Um, the economic nationalists, uh, old cold warriors. Um, yeah, that, that's a very useful and interesting way to show how it's spanned, um, you know, right and left in some ways very similar to the Cold War uh, and, and which is sort of what sustained the Cold War th um, throughout decades, even when there were changes of government. Um, yeah, and, and one of the things you had mentioned already in this interview was how you know, the old situation uh, with the Soviet Union is very different to the current situation. And if I understand you correctly, the major difference you see is that um, China is highly successful. And so it perhaps provides a challenge to Western liberal capitalist democracy in a way that the old Soviet Union did not. Is, is that a correct understanding that, of what that, you're saying? That's absolutely correct. Uh, I mean, in the case of the Soviet Union, uh, I think once the truth about their failed uh, model was understood in the Soviet Union and outside, the, the whole structure just collapsed. Um, but in, in China's case, I mean, they are succeeding economically. They're overcoming many of the problems that they had. They've, they've got... Despite having a you know dictatorial leadership, they have very accomplished technocrats. Uh, Xi himself, the president, uh, when he first came into office, was focusing on problems like how do you create a bond market and how do you make equity markets work better? Um, how do you improve systems of intellectual property markets? That's not the kind of thing that uh, the ancient Soviet leaders were preoccupied with. Uh, and they're doing a, a very good job with it. Um, and it's very difficult to see how the expansion of China is now going to be stopped, if indeed that was the objective of the new Cold Warriors. Yeah, because um, th that is one of the um, the arguments, from what I understand in your book, that um, uh, your, your argument is not necessarily... Uh, well, I, I suppose you can clarify. I, I, is it that listen, uh, we have to live with the fact that different people will be organizing their societies in different uh, ways other than Western liberal democracy. So there's that one argument on the other hand, and the other argument is that there's no way that we can actually ignore China or make it go away because economically it is either already dominant or is very soon going to become the dominant economic superpower. Yes, I think you've, you've summarized my own arguments very well there. Um, I, I think the, the example I single out of a sort of Western country that seems to, have, in my view anyway, to have got this right uh, is Germany. 
uh, under Angela Merkel. I mean, nobody would question her commitment to ethical governments. You know, she had this very principled stand on immigration into Germany. She's a highly ethical leader, but has taken the realistic view that China is here to stay, a major power. Um, Germany, as an um, exporting country, has major interests in uh, dealing in a practical way with China. Uh, some of the big um, uh, German car companies in particular have major investments there and are doing very well there. Uh, but but in addition to that, n- not just pursuing narrow national self-interest, but arguing that the big challenges of the world, whether it's climate change or pandemic management or getting new sets of rules around trade and, and the economy, uh, dealing with developments in Africa, I mean, these are going to require a combined effort by the West and China. And to simply disregard the Chinese or treat them as enemies um, certainly doesn't help pursue those areas of common interest. In terms of, of China's um, uh, strengths and, and weaknesses, uh, and, and the COVID example which, which you gave, I, I, I think that is uh, an excellent analysis you have of you know, that, um, yes, they, uh, you know, the you know both the strength and and weaknesses were were shown um, in the secrecy and whatnot. But then once you know once they decided to do something, they did it with ruthless efficiency. And and you know you compare you know I saw the Halloween parties in Wuhan, and you know you know social distancing was basically uh, you know finished with over there, and and you know societies were opened up in a way that that most in the Western world were not and now i understand they are um looking to uh ban um visitors at least for for temporarily uh, visitors from the uk and and europe so you know roles have been reversed that um you know they are they are pushing ahead while the rest of the world is uh, still struggling um do do you think the um, the disapproval, uh, the public disapproval in the West towards China that has arisen from COVID? Do, do you think it is fair? Uh, uh, do Do you think it is is based on a, a lot of exaggerations, or do you think it is you know it's justifiable? Perhaps unfortunate if we do have to engage them. Uh, yeah, what what's your view of of this? see change or, or this massive change since the COVID uh, crisis? Well, I, I, th- I think it is legitimate to criticise their lack of early action. I think that's perfectly fair. And there may well have been political motivation behind it um, and unwillingness to accept that you know there were things in the Chinese system that weren't working. So I think criticism was justified. But unfortunately, in particularly in America, you have these completely paranoid stories that the Chinese sought to infect the world deliberately um, and that they've you know sabotaged Western economies. Um, I mean that is nonsense. So th- there is there is legitimate scope for criticism, but you know the, the problem that we now have in the West, which is that our governments, particularly in the UK, in the United States, and elsewhere, were, were simply too slow and reacted too slowly to the threat that was already becoming apparent. It's a little difficult to criticize the Chinese for being too slow when the same things have happened in the West. Right. Yeah. And um, uh, in terms of of the the view of China and, and its inevitability. Uh, there are people, as you are, are well aware, in in the West in particular, but but elsewhere too, perhaps maybe India, um, who who argue that you know the you know this Chinese rise is actually illusory. It's it's you know part of the state propaganda, um, and that actually it's quite politically unstable, and um, and maybe even economically, you know, it's it's reached its limit. Uh, 
what do you 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 sort of address that in in the book in many ways can can you ex, uh, expand on your answer to that uh, well it's it's certainly not illusory uh, if we're talking for example about their economic statistics I and mean, these have been widely analyzed by the international monetary fund the world bank uh, the Institute of International Finance. I mean, you know, it's not it's, China isn't a closed country in that sense. It's not like North Korea. You know, we know what's going on there, and you know, there are some um, fallacies, perhaps in the numbers occasionally. But but the underlying accuracy of the the way that their economy is depicted is is basically right. Nobody would question it. I think. But there are undoubtedly some weaknesses, and I think they're very conscious of this internally, uh, one of which is that the population is aging. Uh, the one-child policy, which has now become a two-child policy, was so successful uh, that they now have a problem in terms of a decline in the labor force. And unless they can automate um, very quickly, which they are doing and through robotics, um, they're, they're going to hit a, a problem of um, productivity. Uh, there is a danger of some of the steam running out of their economic expansion. So, And they're very conscious of that. Um, I think another problem is that there is a lot of environmental degradation in China. Uh, they have a rather ambiguous attitude towards curbing carbon emissions. On the one hand, they're very advanced on solar power and wind power, but they burn a lot of coal. And there are forces pulling them in one way and the other. And certainly the coal burning is contributing to an enormous amount of air pollution and the effect this has on people's physical health. And the Chinese leadership are very well aware of these problems. So it's not a country without problems or without weaknesses. But all one can say is that Westerners have repeatedly prophesied that China was going to run out of steam or sort of collapse in a heap. Uh, and that's never happened. Uh, I remember when I first went to China to deal with these scenarios for Shell, there, there were an awful lot of people who just didn't believe that they could keep this going. And 30 years later, they have. You've been around, you know, a, a while, you know, hands on in 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 this sort of international trade uh, aspect and international relations, global economy. Uh in your view, you know, what makes this different from, you know, what makes China different from, let's say, the talk about Japan in the 1980s, you know, that Japan was going to um, overtake the U.S. and, and the West. And, and then, you know, it went into its spectacular, you know, deflationary period since the 90s, which it probably still hasn't recovered from. Well, what makes China different from the Japan scenario, in your view? Well, certainly Japan hit the buffers with its financial bubble and when the financial bubble burst. I don't think the Japanese themselves ever saw themselves as the overtaken the United States or anything of that kind. There were sort of kind of scary books written in America, but I don't think the Japanese ever held that view. But the, the big difference from China, of course, is that Japan is a much richer country. Um, Japan has, uh, China still has an awful long way to go to continue to raise living standards so that uh, it's not, it's not as, as if they've reached a kind of saturation level or a peak. I mean, that's one big difference. Mm -hmm. um, and the other is that, you know, the Chinese have studied carefully um, where the, you know, financial instability hit the West and in particular hit Japan and they've developed a robust system of regulation to make sure it doesn't happen there. And this argument of the last 48 hours about the cancellation of the um, public offering by Ants, it was going to be the biggest in the world, um, was it was stopped um, mm -hmm. in substantial part because the Chinese authorities wanted to make absolutely sure that the um, regulatory regime around um, fintech, uh, financial payments through electronic medium, uh, was absolutely secure. Um, and so, they, you know, in a way, they have studied the Japanese story and they've learned from it. And having said that, one, one shouldn't underestimate the extent to which the Japanese themselves have pulled together a, 
remarkable rescue operation. I mean, they, they they did have a collapse of the banking system. It caused a lot of damage. But under Prime Minister Abe uh, and his so-called three arrows, uh, a combination of monetary and fiscal policy and structural reform, uh, a lot has been done to turn around the Japanese economy. It is in a much healthier state than it was. They have a lot of public debt, but it's you know the Japanese are happy to lend to their own government, so it's not a not a major threat to the stability of their system. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. In your book, your uh, chapters are uh, nicely titled in, you know, in terms of uh, pushing the debate and and the argument forward and and one of the one of the chapters is uh, is china's economic success good for the rest of us uh, it's a very pertinent question um i myself have my own views but i i would like to uh, hear your argument and our audience obviously would like to hear your argument well th- there are opportunities and threats as there are in a lot of uh, economic questions uh, the opportunities for the west are that you know, China is an enormous market, um, gives enormous opportunities to uh, Western companies, which um, manage their relationship there well. Um, it, it's also, I mean, China has also, in many ways, saved the world economy in the aftermath of the financial crisis 10 years ago. Uh, China embarked embarked on Mm -hmm. this quite extraordinary boom in investment. The the anecdote is that they poured more cement in those years than America had done in the previous century. Uh, And and by doing that, they sort of pulled along the world economy. Um, Many commodity exporters were able to benefit from exporting raw materials to China they sucked in capital goods from Germany and, and, and other countries, and they provided a market for an, an enormous amount of outsourcing and subcontracting throughout Asia. Um, so, you know, they pulled a lot of countries with them. So that's the positive side. On the negative side, um, a lot of people, particularly in the United States, have argued that Chinese manufactured exports have driven down wages and destroyed jobs. I mean, there's, a, there's an element of truth in it. The, the Trump people, I think, wildly exaggerated it. Um, so, you, you know, you you have to, you know, look, look at the balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'll tell you from, from my perspective here, uh, especially looking at the experience of developing countries, um, which I know you have a lot of experience. You, you ad- advised the government of Kenya in the 1960s. You worked with the Commonwealth Secretariat um, for many years. Um, you know, the, the 1980s, with, which much of the West uh, looks upon, you know, uh, very sort of, you know, favorably as, as a booming period and, and with justification. But for, for us in um, the developing world, it, it those were not good times for us. There was huge debt crises and, and a lot of you know stagnation that had been there. And on the other hand, the 1990s, which was a period of opening up and liberalization, you know, was really for many, many developing countries, um, you know, a, a time of prosperity that was spreading throughout the world. And China, I think, had a huge role to play in that because the the consumer goods and and you know um, yeah. The, both, uh, you know, the, the durables and, and the non-durables, uh, which, you know, a lot of people complain about as cheap Chinese goods. But for the first time, you know, people, you know, around the world in Latin America and in Africa and the Caribbean and Asia had access to, you know, the, the goods of, of modern consumer society that were, you know, reserved for the elite in these countries rather than the middle class and the lower class. And, and it was really, you know, Chinese um, manufacturing that may have been, you know, derivative in many ways, may have, you know, violated intellectual property rights, um, 
but you know, but they produce goods at an affordable uh, price that was able to you know service the. Um, I can't remember his name, but uh, but you, there's a management guru that talks about the the bottom, uh, the fortune at the bottom of the period pyramid. The, you know, the billions of people that have not been served by global capitalism, and uh, and China really did that. And within its own country, that massive transformation of you know pulling 800 million people out of absolute poverty in a span of 40 years is just Un, it's unprecedented in human history, and and I think that um, in the global discourse about China and and the global economy, this is this is often overlooked. But you know, uh, and even you know, in the past twenty years or so, uh, if you look at the top ten growing economies in the world, uh, at least half and and more usually. Are from sub-Saharan Africa, and and I think this has a lot to do with China. Um, what are your reflections on no, this? No, I think that's a very good and a very fair analysis. I mean, I would simply add it because it wasn't just developing countries that benefited from Chinese um, manufactured imports. Um, those of us who were consumers, as opposed to workers in competing industries, um, benefited enormously from it, and it contributed to the decline in inflation in goods, uh, which was a major feature of uh, mm -hmm. economic growth in those decades. So you're absolutely right about that. As far as Africa's concerned, certainly the, the Chinese have invested absolutely massively in African infrastructure on a far greater scale than, than Western countries, certainly in recent years. Um, the criticism is, of course, that much of it is directed to um, extractive raw materials um, designed to supply um, China's own industries. Um, it's replicated in many ways the pattern of production that existed under colonialism. Um, in countries like Nigeria, uh, where I attended a conference on the impact of China on Africa, um, there was a recognition of the positive role the Chinese had played, but there was also a lot of grumbles from Nigerian manufacturers who claimed that they were being driven out of business by all these cheap um Chinese goods. So the, 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 there were two sides to it. Mm -hmm. um, now, um, Africa yeah. has got very serious problems because of COVID. Um, there, several of the countries, because of the collapse of their exports, um, are now facing a serious debt crisis. And I think it will be a measure of Chinese um, magnanimity and of their imagination uh, that they are willing to write off a substantial chunk of their African debt in the same way that Western governments have been asked to do. Yeah, yeah, and you and and you're right. Obviously, there are two sides um, to the story, and and I have a lot of sympathy with the economic, <clears throat> the economic nationalist arguments about um, the gutting out of uh, industry uh, and you know pauperizing much of of the middle class and the lower middle class. Uh, you know, who once had, you know, manufacturing jobs or, or whatnot now, you know, maybe have to work at Starbucks or, or these sort of very, um, you know, uh, service industry jobs that, that don't have the same heft or dignity or paycheck as, as the manufacturing jobs once did. And, and, but I, I don't believe that China is, Although it may have been the beneficiary of a lot of these uh, economic changes of globalization in the 90s and the sort of uh, globalization of the production chains, uh, but I don't think that they, they are necessarily to blame. I, I think that was the, the multinational corporation lobbyists themselves who, who were looking at that. Uh, what's your view on that? Uh, well, I'm less sympathetic than you are to the complaint, actually. Uh, I mean, there, there is some evidence mm -hmm. that uh, Chinese imports in the United States contributed to job losses and maybe to partial stagnation of wages. But there were many other factors involved. Uh, I mean, the industries that have declined, uh, steel, the car industry in recent years. I mean, the, the employment in those industries was declining in any event because of technological change. Uh, they're now being, you know, robotized um, with very little employment. 
uh, and in, in his four years at China, uh, Trump has been able to do very little to restore employment to those areas where job losses have been blamed on the Chinese. The Chinese have become a scapegoat in many ways for painful industrial change. Now, an, another chapter you have in the book, um, which would, I suppose, maybe you know, provoke a lot of the hardcore cold warriors is you know, where you talk about Chinese expansionism and, and your view is that <clears throat> Chinese expansionism is ex- exaggerated. But, you know, you know, people talk about the China Sea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, the recent uh, skirmishes with India, uh, and also even the the Belt and Road Initiative as a sort of debt trap and, and uh, uh, an economic uh, form of imperialism. So what are your arguments against um, those, um, those views? Well, China is becoming, is, is a, a superpower and has a global influence um, in much the same way that the United States did until very recently and as the British had in the 19th century. Uh, and it is going to provoke uh, and is provoking a reaction. But, but unlike um, I think the leading Western countries, certainly unlike Japan in the interwar period, there's very little sign that, that Chinese motives are much beyond economic. I mean, they they are very concerned about the security of their borders, which is why they have got into conflict with India. And you can argue about who's to blame. I suspect this sort of 50-50. Uh, they got into a conflict with Vietnam. Um, they had a short war with them about 40 years ago, and they came off much the worse, as it happens. Um, they've got this unfinished business with Taiwan, but there's no sign at present that they're preparing a, 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 an invasion that would require an enormous military organization. They do a bit of saber-rattling around their um, the South China Sea and the islands off Japan, and it is quite alarming for the people involved in it. But when you actually look at this objectively, uh, what the Chinese have done with their armed forces is to expand them broadly in line with their economy. And if you've got an economy growing at nearly 10%, then it's quite rapid expansion. But it's it's about 2% of GDP, I think, in recent years. Um, their armed forces are quite sophisticated these days. Have uh, got access to advanced technology, but they're not battle hardened. They've they've not been in a war since the war with Vietnam and the odd skirmish with India. Unlike the Americans, who've got um, experience of fighting wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and basically have much more effectively trained troops. So I think to treat China as a military threat is greatly overstating their position. The people need to be vigilant, uh, and there, there will be some tough calls as to how far to defend Taiwan should they come under actual assault. But the, the idea that China is, I think, a major expansionist power goes completely contrary to what we know of their history or of their current motivation. I mean, only last week uh, there was a, a, a session, a, pl- a plenary session of the, the ruling party, and their priorities were clearly domestic. You know, it's building up their domestic economy, dealing with their significant outstanding problems, reforming, uh, dealing with environmental issues, uh, the idea that they're, they're planning to set out to conquer um, the Pacific region is is just kind of alarmist fantasy. Yes, yes. You know, I I think that you, you talked about the current motivation. I, I think that's very important. And in my view, I think that the intellectual framework is wrong. Um, Mar- Martin Jake, in uh, who who did write a little uh, uh, testimonial. Uh, blurb for for your book and uh, who wrote a, a book that I, I enjoyed very much, uh, When China Rules the World. Yes, it, it's a very, very good book, I agree. Yes. I mean, he, he's a bit of a, you know, a, a Sinophile, um, you know, very, very uh, um, pro-China and there's uh, nothing wrong with that, I suppose. Uh, and I, I think his, his book is fascinating and I, I found it eye-opening. Um, and, and one of the, the arguments 
he makes there was that um, you know for five thousand years of Chinese history that um, where you know they were the dominant economic power for thousands of years in in world history, um, you know they did not show any sort of imperialist you know ex, uh, imperialist ambitions. Uh, you know, outside of its border areas, but you know, it, it you know it was sailing all throughout the Indian Ocean uh, and and whatnot. But uh, it it was not looking to um, to subjugate uh, you know other other countries in in East Africa or uh, you know West Asia and in the Middle East uh, where it it had all all these contacts. Um, I, I I think that that's an important observation. But also, I I think that. That um, most Western-based analyses of the rise of China, as you yourself talk about the uh, Thucydides trap and and um, you know the, the sort of competing hegemons and, and hegemonic transfer in, in the world system, I, they're ignoring, I believe, the the history of the uh, the third world decolonization movement. Uh, the the Bandung movement, this, the non-aligned movement, um, which China was very much allied to and a part of, you know, um, critiquing the world order uh, after World War II um, with you know, with India, with well at the time Yugoslavia and and, and many other countries all all throughout Africa, Asia, Latin America. Um, uh, who were former colonies and and looking to reform international economic institutions with a new international economic order, reforming the the uh, the lock that the European Union and the United States had on the IMF and the World Bank, you know, their leadership, the 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 way the UN is structured, the the way the IMF and World Bank are structured, the the vetoes and and whatnot, and uh, and. The global military uh, environment with NATO and um, and the the Warsaw Pact at the time, uh, it, so th- they ha- there's been this long push towards making a multipolar world, towards um, including uh, developing countries much more in, in into global governance and uh, and respecting um, national sovereignty. Uh, as part of of this, the, I, I think that is very, very much you know highly consistent with with China's international um, uh, expansion and intervention, and even the Belt and Road Initiative. You know, its focus on development. Uh, but I, I think this is very, very much missing in the analysis of China. Uh, what's your view on that? No, I think a lot of the things you said are are very true. I mean, I think one of the problems we have at the moment is that the Western world, particularly the United States, is finding it very difficult to come to terms with the fact that they're no longer top dog, uh, they no longer set the rules of the game, uh, and they're going to have to respect um, the power and the success of uh, a competing center here. Um, You mentioned national sovereignty. Um, which has been a major driving force in the newly independent former colonies. Uh, This is, of course, what the Chinese say when people complain about their approach to Hong Kong or uh, things they do internally. They say, well, you may not like it, but... You know, we, 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 we want to protect our territorial integrity. Now, that's not compatible, really, with the Western kind of messianic view about spreading liberal democracy through the world. But I, I suspect it resonates with quite a lot of developing countries who uh, whose national sovereignty has only just come to be uh, acknowledged. So, yes, you're right. And I, I think that the danger of this, um, you know, superpower Competition arguments, the through, through, is that, I've forgotten how you pronounce it, you know, through Clidys trap, is that right? Yeah, um, it, yeah, is that it sort of poses a, a model of the world uh, in which, you know, that, that there is bound to be competition and conflict. And I don't see why that's necessarily the case. I think, you know, the, the West, and particularly the United States, has got to be grown up and accept the fact that they've got a big, new, successful player here. Uh, and learn how to adjust to it and be wary, of course, and protect their interests. But 
um, learn to live with it and gauge, as I put it. Yes, yes, and um, and I I uh, I like and I'm intrigued by your you know reference to um, uh, the messianic view of of the West and and its liberal democracy and and I suppose it's sort of liberal expansionism wanting to take you know democracy to every. Um, you know, corner of, of the world, which, you know, the experiences in Iraq and, uh, and elsewhere in the Middle East and Afghanistan, you know, would be very cautionary, uh, I think, to, towards all of that. And, and you described the mixed feelings in the EU and, and you know, some of the relations with uh, other Asian countries and Africa um, with regards to human rights. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested in, in your view on this, especially since you were the leader of the liberal, uh, you know, the Lib Dems in the UK. So one would, uh, you know, one might think that, that you would, you might share a bit of the, uh, the liberal messianic view, but, but you, you seem to have a, a, a skeptical, uh, at least, uh, you know, a, a bit of, of, of an ability to, to have a skeptical view of it. Uh, and I think that's very interesting. Could you well, expand on that for us? Yes, I, I think you, you've touched quite a sore nerve here. I think I, I am a bit schizophrenic about this. Certainly when I was active in politics, I used to bang on about human rights abuse in various parts of the world. My, my favorite villain was Saudi Arabia because I thought the way they treated um, – Women and particularly in recent years, the Yemenis was just beyond forgiveness. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the, there are other villains too. But you know, so there is a part of me that is part of that messianic <laughs> liberal culture. Mm -hmm. um, but I think when we're dealing realistically with the fact that, that, that there is human rights abuse in many parts of the world, um, a lot nearer to Europe than than China. Uh, bad things are happening in the Middle East. Of course, Syria is pathological. Um, bits of, of, of Russia are in a very oppressive. Turkey has become not just a difficult power, but oppresses its Kurdish minority very badly. Um, you know, we have the problem of India. I'm a great fan of India. Um, I wish that they, you know, they could get their economy back on track and we'd have a, a another democratic superpower coming out of Asia. But the fact is India also has its minority issues and the treatment of Muslims in Kashmir and elsewhere. So, you know, although there are things to criticize in China, and in fact, when I'm manning my um, messianic liberal democracy hat, uh, it is unfortunately a, a sort of global phenomenon. And, and whereas I think it's important that you know, liberal Democrats stand their ground and, and they practice their faith in their own countries, particularly uh, just finger wagging and pointing fingers at the Chinese and others. I don't think it helps us one little bit. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, I mean, in, in looking at, at all these issues um, and, and uh, having a, a – a balanced view of them, but but coming down on on the side of listen, we must uh, avoid this cold war. We we have to engage with them. Uh, your your message, essentially, you summarize it as as grow up. <laughs> Which I, so could you uh, expand on that for us? Uh, yes, I, I think that's where I do come out. I mean, going back to a reference you made um, a few minutes ago to Martin Jakes's book which I think was was a fantastic piece of work, and I broadly endorse his approach. I mean, mm -hmm. like me, he's not uncritical. I mean, he's not naive about China, and he, some of his criticisms are quite brutal. I mean, he points out that there is a very strong streak of racism in the Chinese culture, which is probably um, more entrenched mm -hmm. than it is in Western societies these days, uh, and that's something he encountered, yeah. and he doesn't pull any punches in describing it. Um, so, you know, we're not dealing necessarily with good versus evil. Uh, we're dealing with a mixture of values. Mm -hmm. um, but my message is very much as the way you summarized it. We have to be realistic and we have to engage with them. Right, right. Now, so with, I mean, with, with this uh, COVID crisis, with the turning of public opinion against China, uh, and you know the saber rattling continuing. Um, how how do you see 
um, the next, you know, the, the next few years. Um, uh, it, it, let's say the, the, the next day, do, do you think things are, are actually going to get worse with China, that there's probably going to be a silo that, you know, Huawei and 5G and TikTok and, and, all, and all these things that are being banned, um, it's actually going to um, drive the countries apart? Or do, do you see hope for, for actual further engagement? I, I know, you know, um, there are, you know, forces in, in the different countries that, that are not, you know, pushing for this Cold War that are, are seeking for. Even President Trump it, at some point, you know, talks about, he started out talking about, you know, working with Russia, working with China, but, you know, he's, he's been moved away. How, how do you see these things developing? I, I know it's, it's, it's difficult and hard to make projections and predictions, but, you know, uh, it would just be interesting to, to hear your view. I think an awful lot depends on who wins this arms arm wrestling contest in the United States. Um, if it is Trump, um, which now looks unlikely, but if it is Trump again, I mean, he will pursue this very unilateral, eccentric, um, quirky, unpredictable um, line in foreign policy. Um, it will probably be conflictual. Uh, he's getting quite a lot of political mileage about being the president who stood up to China. But ultimately, his approach is what you might call transactional. I mean, if the Chinese are willing to make concrete concessions on trade, maybe giving them a few golf courses to uh, set up in China, I suspect relations would calm down. With Biden, it's um, who now seems likely to win, no, not certain, but likely, um, one factor makes it more difficult, I think, because he is an alliance builder. He's a very astute diplomat. He will be much better than Trump at building up a, an alliance uh, to confront the Chinese. But at the same time, he's not um, he's not erratic and wild uh, and has a belief in the workings of the multilateral system, in the World Trade Organization, the World Health Organization, climate change, and he will need the Chinese to be partners in those. So there will be a tension in his case between um, you know, building up the you know, anti-Chinese front versus engaging with them on multilateral initiatives. I'm not quite sure how that will play out, probably case by case. Um, I have a bit more confident that a sort of rational Biden administration would probably be better for the world, um, but it remains to be seen. Right. So uh, in the end, uh, if you were to sum up a, a message that uh, you'd like your readers to walk away with from this book, what would it be? I think that the biggest issue for the next generation in terms of international relationships is going to be how we deal with China, whether we uh, live with them, cooperate with them, or are involved in a new Cold War, a new form of conflict. Um, I think the sooner we face up to the arguments for and against, the better. Uh, my view is that the future lies with engagement, that there are very considerable economic benefits from doing so. And many of the world's problems require working with, cooperating with people whose systems we may not like, um, and that's China. Right. Now, I, the book is available now. It's been published this year, and uh, I mean, I encourage everybody everybody to get it. It's, it's a, it's a bite-sized book that uh, is short, uh, very easily, uh, easy to read, um, an excellent overview. But I, 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 so I know you're promoting this right now, but I know you're also working – on some other projects, um, including uh, Money and Power. Uh, is that the same book you were referring to before, or is that another yes, one? Yes, yes. I'm looking at the, the major political figures of the last two centuries. I start with Alexander Hamilton and Peel in the 19th century, then through Bismarck, Lenin, uh, Roosevelt, and then in the modern era, uh, Margaret Thatcher, Deng Xiaoping, and I finish up with Trumponomics. Um, I've got... 16 leading politicians who have actually changed the way we think about economics and do economics. It's a political economy. I don't think anybody's ever approached the subject that way. There's a lot of books written about leading economists. 
I've, I've not encountered any that are reading a, the books about the leading politicians who made an, in, an impact on the economics. So I'm, I, I like to think that the book I'm bringing out is unique and will attract widespread interest. I, I certainly spent a couple of years of hard work and detailed research on it. Wow, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I definitely look forward to that as well. Uh, that that's great. Yeah, I, it, nothing like that has been done in uh, under you know uh, under a single cover. You know, you, you might find little bits in each each person, but yeah, I think that's an excellent, um, an excellent and worthwhile project. I wish you uh, all the best with that. Good. Well, thank you. And uh, readers can find you at uh, vincecable.com, Is that correct? Uh, VinceCable.org. Uh, yes, that's my website. And my, .org. Yes, and my um, email is vincentcable at hotmail.co.uk. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It's, it's been very informative and enjoyable. Good. Thank you, Kirk. And the best of luck to you. Once again, the book is China Engage, Avoid the New Cold War. And we've been speaking to the author, Sir Vince Cable. And thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Okay.